having just finished up uh, our rich time in Romans 12 and setting off on a couple of weeks journey outside the country, I thought it'd be a good time for us to take a break, if you will, from uh, the book of Romans and to take a, a topic that perhaps not many of us think about theologically, although we do think a lot about it, uh, and that is the issue of beauty or aesthetics, we might say. These are the kinds of things I think of, anyway, when I don't have my nose in Romans all the time. I'm contemplating all sorts of subjects, and one I've thought a lot about is the issue of beauty. And so I want to take just a little time away from our typical Bible exposition and to think theologically this morning on a a topic that we might call or might label a theology of beauty. And I want to spend our time trying to ask and answer one major question. Does theology have any impact on the way we think of beauty? Is all of life theological or is only parts of life theological? And if it is all theological, then surely theology must address the issue of how we think of beautiful things and whether they are beautiful or whether they're not. As one writer says it, if we commit ourselves to saying that Christian revelation discovers to us the nature of all truth, then it must discover to us the nature about art, about beauty, among other things. So we might ask the question, is beauty theological? Is beauty something that can even be thought of as being governed by theology? Isn't beauty even really just in the eye of beholder, as it is commonly said today? Isn't it just such a subjective exercise that you really could never come to the timeless and settled truths of theology to to try to dictate it? Or we might ask it this way, is there anything so widespread and so important to our human experience as beauty or even as art which is not governed by theology? If we conclude that beauty is governed by the truth of Scripture and the ideas of theology, what does it say? How is beauty affected by Maybe on one hand, the world's rejection of God and their rejection of His truth. And on the other hand, our redemption in Christ. Those are all kinds of questions that we want to ask today about this topic of beauty. It's an important topic for at least a couple of reasons. It's important that we think about it because, first of all, all that we do, as we said, we are to do to the glory of God. In little things, even whether we eat or drink, First Corinthians says... We're to do that to the glory of God. All things then, we conclude, are theological. And so we need to think about all things in light of the truths of Scripture, even something like the idea of beauty. And secondly, this is an important topic because we live in an increasingly aesthetic culture. We live in a society that maybe more than any other time, is a very visual culture. For better or for worse, people operate in this visual culture with images upon image, scrolling past their eyes in unprecedented ways, 
It might be some random photo or video posted to a friend's social media. Or it might be one of the more curated images that are presented to us time and time again by all of the advertising world, all of the, uh, the uh, corporate world to grab and captivate our attention for whatever season of time they can. Carefully crafted, carefully thought about in terms of what grabs us and holds us. Many Christians almost unconsciously swim in this culture without really ever considering the deeper things about what ought to captivate them and what is beautiful. They're just drawn along from one image to the next, from one sound to the next, from one interaction of whatever is attractive to the next. In fact, many Christians themselves get involved with creating so much of this culture, creating images, creating art. There are many who take up the the, the hobby, maybe even the profession of photographers or videographers or or sound folioists or, or painters or actors or all of those other things. They're increasingly involved with artistic and visual and and musical endeavors. Uh, musical arts themselves are more accessible than they've ever been. You go back just a little bit before the digital age, and to hear music, you had to seek out a skilled musician who would take the time to either learn and play for you or at least uh, demonstrate to you some level of, of aptitude. But these days, it's on the touch of your handheld device. You have virtually the entire world of music at your fingertips professionally uh, recorded and stored and listened to over and over again so that the standards, we might say, of musical excellence and beauty are raised all the time. And so we're asking the question, does theology say anything about all of this stuff? Not just about the lyrics that we listen to, but even about the things that we look at. And we shouldn't limit our discussion just of beauty on, and, and art to what takes place through our digital devices, we're almost inevitably investing time and money into bringing beauty out of ugliness and order out of chaos. We're investing in homes. We're investing in our yards, some of us less than others. We're investing in making things lovely and beautiful because we have an impulse to do that, whether it is our faces or our clothing or whatever it might be. And the reality is that this is a world we live in where we're constantly making choices and we're constantly confronted with options about aesthetics and about beauty and about how we invest in all those things and we need to think about it theologically. We need to think about it in ways that honor God. Now, in broad terms, we might say that the church has responded to all of this, especially in the recent era, has responded to it in one of two ways, two broad responses to the issue of beauty and aesthetics and art all around us. The first, we might say, is separation. The second is contextualization. And I want us to think about those two for just a moment, maybe even consider what I believe is really a third option. But the first 
Uh, just to sort of frame it up, the first of these responses to all the aesthetic uh, choices and options that are around us in the culture, for some churches, for some Christians, the choice has simply been to separate themselves from as much of it as possible. To turn off as much of the digital world as possible, to tone down the decorating, to tone down the wardrobe, to in some extreme cases even avoid the use of makeup and to avoid all designer clothing, even relegate yourself to designing and making your own clothing, that is considered to be the best option. Their overall mantra is simplicity. We might even say in some cases blandness. And there's a general attempt or, or, or an idea that, that all of the stimuli surrounding us in all this visual and aesthetic culture ought to be avoided as much as possible since it seems to inevitably lead to bad things. There's a celebration in these camps in general of the idea of temperance. And you often hear it presented in these uh, contrast between the temporal and the eternal. And that which is eternal is thought to be just simply the, the sort of uh, principles and precepts that might arise from the study of theology or scripture. Everything else is going to be burned up and, and thrown into the fire. So what good is it? What use is it anyway? And yet Christians find themselves constantly conflicted because... In the real world, the pursuit of so many of those eternally valuable things take place through the medium of those very temporal things. Take, for example, your family. We're all engaged in this process of raising families and raising children, and as we do that, we begin to think about the practical realities of not only providing for them, but the kind of environment that we want to provide, and so we make decisions about things like our houses, and we make investments in them so that it can be an enjoyable place to raise a family, a place that will not only facilitate what we're doing, but one that people will enjoy coming home to, they'll have fond memories of, they'll be comfortable It'll be pleasant to whatever reasonable extent that we can do that. Sure, it's a very temporal thing. It's burned up. But doing family in the context of an enjoyable environment, let's just say in the context of a beautiful environment, winds up being a big part of our lives. And we shouldn't celebrate then just this this sometimes uh, simplistic distinction between temporal and eternal is not always that easy. The problem with those who uh, choose the path of separation is that they find that it's not easily passed on from generation to generation. It might be the commitment of parents or maybe even grandparents, but it often comes across to the next generation as being just as artificial and perhaps as superficial as the visual culture outside of their bubble. Doesn't strike people as a genuine and authentic approach to human life just to sever yourself and cut yourself off from the creative and overall pursuit of creativity all around us. That kind of separation recognizes 
that most of the um, visual and image culture that surrounds us is driven by and is filled with corruption and sensuality, but it also leaves us with few avenues to really engage the world with the gospel. It simply cuts them off. So there's a second approach that people have adopted. Not separation, but contextualization. That's the idea with many Christians and in many cultures and, 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 excuse me, in many churches where instead of separating themselves from the world, they look at all the world around us, particularly the musical and the visual and the aesthetic world, and they make attempts to make the gospel appear more relevant to that surrounding culture by presenting it in the context of the world's culture. It often means the adopting of the world's aesthetic, the world's music, the world's artistic values, and those who embrace contextualization celebrate what they believe then is the authenticity in human experience with all of these things that are going on around them. You hear that word all the time, the sincerity, the authenticity that they are trying to bring, and they celebrate it for the sake of evangelism. They celebrate it for the sake of preaching the gospel, or at least their idea of preaching the gospel, of reaching their neighbor in an engaging way. But the issue, of course, is that within within these uh, contextualized environments, the gospel itself, the clarity of the gospel message, seems to be inevitably lost in all the noise of the culture, in all the noise of the contextualization. And in fact, too often it seems that people who go down this pathway, just drift further and further and deeper and deeper, not just into the world's forms, but also into the world's thinking. It becomes a polluting influence. Well, my experience is, is that many Christians see these two approaches and feel really uneasy about both of them. They don't feel like either one of them is exactly right. Both approaches come across as perhaps false or insincere. And so they're left asking themselves, how then do I navigate through the real world? How do I make decisions about everything from the way that I dress to the kind of house that I have, to the kind of ways that I decorate it, to my car and to my my uh, entertainment even, to my career? How do I communicate with a surrounding world that is so much engaged in these visual and artistic forms uh, that, that, that fill our lives? How do I do that without becoming like the world? Well, I, I would like to propose a third option, which isn't separation and it isn't contextualization, it's transformation. It is looking at these things which are a part of the reality of our life and actually redeeming them, transforming them, not just co-opting what the world presents to us, but taking the idea of beauty and transforming it under the gospel of Christ. And so I want to take just a few minutes this morning and help us to think briefly how we might do this. The whole idea of beauty... And to do that, I'm just going to present 
Three principles. We can't cover everything. It's a vast subject, as you might imagine. But three principles that I believe are clear in Scripture that can help us understand not only the importance of pursuing the idea of beauty, but of how we should do that in a way that glorifies God. Three principles that help us understand the importance of pursuing beauty. And here's the first one. comes to us out of the book of Genesis. And it's simply this. The pursuit of beauty is our mandate as image bearers of God. A pursuit of beauty is our mandate as image bearers of God. And this principle is grounded in one of the first and most basic passages of Scripture that talk to us about being human. If you have your Bibles, you could look with me at Genesis chapter 1. And you find it right there at the beginning of Scripture, one of the foundational chapters and passages in all the Bible. Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. Excuse me, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this is foundational to our understanding of why God made us of why He made creation and how He made creation. And there are two key components. You'll see it repeated twice in these three verses. Two components of this. First of all, humanity has been created, both male and female, in the image of God. There's something about us that reflects the image of God or the likeness of God. And He says that He made us that way. And then secondly, we are commanded to subdue the earth. We're commanded to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. You could add to that, I I guess, maybe a a subgroup, which is that we are commanded to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the two main ideas out of that passage, at least the ones that are repeated, is the fact that we are created in God's image and we are given a mandate to subdue the earth. Now, this was God's design in creation in the perfect world before sin ever existed in the world. He made the world this way, and this is how He designed it to be. But even after sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, we see, particularly later in the book of Genesis in chapter 9, verse 6, that mankind, even in his fallen and sinful state, still bears the image of God. He still is said to be made in God's image. The image was not lost when humanity fell into sin. We're still, we're still recognized as representatives of God in that way. And, we might add, we're still commanded to fill the earth, being fruitful and multiplying. And then, along with that, we're still commanded, or <coughs> we still operate, we might say, under the mandate of of Genesis chapter 1, the, the dominion mandate, you might say. None of that was lost because we fell into sin or because of the corruption that came in the world. As we read earlier this morning in 
Psalm 8. The psalmist says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. So here you see later scripture repeating those same themes that were there originally in creation. These are basic to God's design to us as human beings. We're made in the image of God and we are to have dominion over the works of God's hands. Dominion over creation. The problem, of course, is that God designed the world to be that way, but then sin entered into the world. Corruption. Men and women were corrupted by sin. They retained the image of God, but it is marred in some fashion. They became corrupted by sin, and because of that, because the image of God is corrupted, their dominion over the earth is now corrupted. And so there's a need for, we might say, restoration, a need for renewal. We need to be redeemed, which is exactly what God provides in Jesus Christ. He came because you and I were corrupted, because we were fallen, because we were debased, because we were polluted by sin. And because of sin, we stand eternally condemned before God under His wrath. And because of sin, we're not able to fulfill God's design for us in creation. But God in His mercy and in His grace, although we had rebelled against Him, although we had spurned His Lordship and His love, He provides a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion to pay the price for our sins. He provides a way for us to be restored to an uncorrupted image of God. This is the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 4. When he says to the Corinthians, he says, you didn't learn Christ in in the way which he had described to them earlier in Ephesians 4. He says, you didn't learn Christ in this way, assuming that you've heard about Him, were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that We are to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, we're to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or as he says to the Colossians, he says that through the power of the gospel, we are to put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So in other words, the scripture teaches that that even with the fall of man, we retain the image of God within us, but that image itself needs renewal. And the only way to be renewed is through the work of Christ. We're renewed through his redeeming work. God's image is restored through Christ, and Paul indicates that this renewal takes place, among other places, in our minds. It results in a new way of thinking. It results in a new way of living. It results in the putting aside of the deeds of darkness and putting on the deeds of Christ. It results in righteousness and holiness to the Lord. It results in all of these things because our our inner man is made new. New internal qualities. Our mind, our will, our desires, even our reasoning, our whole way of thinking. And it all results in a new way of living. 
It's these essential qualities, by the way, our way of thinking, our will, our desires. It's those essential qualities that are necessary for us to properly fulfill the the mandate to subdue the earth. In order for us to rule over everything the way God intended us to rule over everything, to have dominion over the creator of the world the way God designs us, we need to be renewed after the image, the true image of the one who made us. We have to be renewed in God's image so that we can properly fulfill his design for dominion. Now this dominion, obviously has to do with subduing all kinds of things. Animals, as we read in Genesis and uh, and, and Psalms. It has to do with, we might say, farming to government to engineering to chemistry. All the works of His hands, as the psalmist says. He's put them under our, our, uh, if you will, uh, rule. And it's our design, God says, that we would subdue those things, that we would bring, we might say it this way, order out of the chaos, that we might bring uh, uh, productivity out of the lack of productivity, that we might bring advancement uh, out of all that lays undeveloped. But a part of that dominion also has to do with bringing beauty out of ugliness. Anthony Hockema writes, one of the qualities of this uh, image in mankind, he says, quote, is man's aesthetic sense, whereby human beings not only can appreciate the beauty that God has lavished on his creation, but also can create artistic beauty of their own. Abraham Kuyper writes, as image bearer of God, man possesses the possibility both to create something beautiful and to delight in it. This can have no other source than God. It is our privilege as bearers of his image to have a perception of this beautiful world, artistically to reproduce it and humanly to enjoy it. Or Frank Gabelin writes this, to be creative in the arts and to enter into creativity of others is to exercise the image of God within oneself. Another one, Gene Edward Veith writes this, he says, Genesis describes how these human beings were given dominion over God, excuse me, over what God had made, artist capacity then to mold raw materials until they do their bidding is a manifestation of that dominion. The ability to capture the beauty of creation in art must be a part of that loving stewardship assigned to Adam and his descendants. Beauty, in other words, would have been a part of the created world, even in its unfallen state, just as a matter of the dominion mandate. Francis Schaeffer writes this, he says, Man is made in the image of God. And therefore, man not only can love and think and feel emotion, but also has the capacity to create. Being in the image of the Creator, we're called upon to have creativity. In fact, it's part of the image of God to be creative or to have creativity. We never find an animal, non-man, making a work of art. On the other hand, we never find men anywhere in the world or in any culture in the world who do not produce art. All that is to say, our capacity 
to make and enjoy what is beautiful is a very part of our humanity. It is redeemed, or I should say, first of all, it is corrupted with the rest of humanity, and then it is redeemed along with the rest of us through Christ. No animals experience that. No animals participate in, in making art any more than they participate in worship. They might make things that are beautiful like a spider's web, but not out of a desire to appreciate its beauty, just out of instinct because God made them that way. And they are manifesting His love of beauty, not their own. But as redeemed humans, as Christians we might say, we recognize that we then have a mandate, whether in painting or in sculpture or poetry or music or architecture or theater or in any other art, to put our hand to the created world and to bring it into submission, into the rule of Christ. As I said, it includes subduing the deformed, the unpleasant, the unattractive, and turning it into something that is appealing and pleasing and attractive. And when we understand the truth of that, that God wants us to subdue the earth, and we combine it with the reality of the world that we live in, we recognize that we have a huge role to play in pursuing beauty, in pursuing creativity, in pursuing what God has laid before our hands, all under the glorious rule of our Savior. So that raises a few questions. Should we then expect to see with those who are renewed in the image of God, should we expect to see within them a greater appreciation for beauty than those who are not redeemed? Should we expect to see Christians have more creative ability than non-Christians? Does our experience teach us that Christians have a higher appreciation for beauty or a higher creativity in general than those who've never experienced God's regenerating work in their inner man, in their, we might say, in their image of God? Does our experience demonstrate that Christians have a higher capacity for beauty than non-Christians? Or we could ask it this way. Is the best art, is the best music, Is the best architecture, the best sculpture, is the best design being done by those who operate with a renewed image after the likeness of Christ? I think very, very few people would say yes. Very few people would say that's the way it is. Leland Riken probably presents the problem as well as anyone when he asks this. He says, why does art used for religious purposes, so overwhelmingly favor unsophisticated or mediocre or overly transparent works? Why do religious artists so often produce what could only be called propaganda rather than art? Why do most churches feel uncomfortable about the presence of music and literature and art in the church? We might follow that up and, and just recognize that if you were to walk in the typical Christian bookstore or gift shop, you're more likely to be confronted with cliched trinkets and mediocre 
representations of art, unsophisticated music, and all manner of attempts, shallow attempts, perhaps at beauty. You could say a similar thing about architecture. In historical places all around the globe, you find tours of great buildings, cathedrals, and halls, and, and even in our own setting, you find people lining up to take tours of grand homes and public buildings. But few, if any, are drawn to modern churches or Christian architecture because of its beauty. In the modern marketplace, the visual arts, the musical arts, all the aesthetic arts are dominated by those who do not profess faith in Christ. Their work is admired. Their work is sought after, not only by non-Christians, but even by Christians. In other words, we recognize that the leaders in the area of beauty and aesthetics are those who make no claim on being renewed after the image of their maker. And yet they demonstrate a capacity that outstrips the capacity of the human, excuse me, the Christian community. So we would never say that our Christian faith automatically gives us a greater capacity for beauty than a non-Christian. And we, we understand even that when it comes to these kinds of, of uh, areas of life, so much is bound up with individual talent and giftedness. We recognize that. We know that. But what the Scripture would call us to recognize is that no matter what your level of giftedness for creativity, we all have a, a function and a responsibility in this area. In fact, whatever capacity the Lord has given to you, you ought to dedicate to Him that it could be enhanced by the working of God's Spirit within you. Which takes us to a second principle. The pursuit of beauty is enhanced by spiritual qualities. The pursuit of beauty is enhanced by spiritual qualities. If we're made in the image of God and the image is corrupted by sin, and if that image is the key to us fulfilling the created mandate, then we shouldn't be surprised, first of all, if a corrupted image leads to sometimes a corruption of the idea of beauty, and at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised if the renewing work of God's Spirit aids us in redeeming those ideas of beauty. And to understand that, we need to understand that creativity or creation of beautiful things is not just an issue of talent and giftedness. It is also an issue of skill It is an issue of truth, and it's an issue of morality. All those things are necessary if we're going to fulfill what the Lord has called us to do, to please the Lord, to bring pleasure and joy to others around us by what we put our hands to. Now, to see that just in in a straightforward form, I I want you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, to a man named Bezalel. Bezalel was what we might call the chief architect and artisan in the construction of God's tabernacle. And we read about him in Exodus 35, beginning in verse 30. In Exodus 35, we read, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, 
See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he's inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. And he's filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or, do, or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver and by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Now, Bezalel's an interesting character. If for no other reason, he's the first person in Scripture to be described as being filled with the Spirit of God. This is the first work of God filling someone with His Spirit to accomplish one of His purposes. And He's filled with the Spirit, we see, in order, not that He preach a gospel message, not that He write a systematic theology, He's filled with the Spirit in order that He might be creative. That He might make something beautiful. And it was the Spirit, we see, who equipped Bezalel with the tools necessary to create this beauty within the tabernacle. God, in other words, didn't just drop on Israel a set of blueprints and designs. It was His intention that it be worked out through the hands of one of His gifted and Spirit-filled servants. Moses tells us the Lord equipped Bezalel to devise artistic designs. Literally, the word artistic just means a scheme. Sometimes it's even translated a machine. In other words, it is a, it is a very cognitive, rational kind of a process that's being described here. It involved all kinds of elements of logic and reason and mental acumen. This guy's artistic ability, in other words, wasn't some purely subjective or sensual impulse. It wasn't the modern idea of a, an artist who was completely intuitive or even irrational, simply carried along by all the impulses of his passions. That wasn't the, 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 the necessary elements in, per, in creating this kind of Beautiful structure. Scripture tells us that God endowed Bezalel with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship. Four things that we could, I guess you could say, break out. A skill we might just perhaps understand as his basic level of talent, and we recognize that. We recognize that the Lord gives various levels of talent to different people and a person's art will really uh, really rarely rise above their level of talent. But just like any other talent, whether it is musical or athletic or whatever, talent can be refined and developed and enhanced with the right kind of training. And so we see this. Secondly, Bezalel was given, along with this skill, intelligence, meaning that that this was an appeal to his mind, to his reason, not simply to his senses. And an artist needs this if he's going to make great art. 
He needs intelligence. He needs an incisive mind so that he can look beyond the, the stale ter- stereotypes and all the false perceptions that are out there and, and look at a work with penetrating insight into whatever the subject matter is and approach it with an incredible amount of intelligent creativity. Thirdly, Bezalel was given knowledge, which probably refers to practical skill, which no doubt involves solving many of the problems that come up with making great art. People don't always think about uh, these kinds of things, but great art involves fields of mathematics and geometry and laws of perspective and even, in some cases, chemistry. And all of that involves, involves a certain amount of knowledge. And then finally, Moses tells us that Bezalel received from the Lord craftsmanship, which likely refers to all the techniques and the methods that have been tried and refined through all the years in artistic fields. In aesthetics, it would be, it would be the, uh, an understanding, we might say, of the tried and true concepts of unity and repetition and symmetry and proportion and all those things that have come down through the passage of time. The Lord fills Bezalel with His Spirit, obviously because He was constructing the tabernacle, the central structure on the face of the earth that was supposed to represent God. And it was not surprising that God would want this structure to not only be functional, but also to be beautiful. It's not surprising because when you look around you, At all the world, you see not just a functional world, but you see a beautiful world. You look at the handiwork of God and you you cannot deny that God was engaged in making beautiful things. People travel for miles and miles to just simply go camp out or to stay at various places around the world and just gaze at the natural wonders and beauties that are made around us. You see that certainly in his, we might say, natural or general revelation, but you also see it in his special revelation. That is to say that even in the Bible, God displays a tremendous interest in art and beauty. Say, how's that? Well, probably the majority of Scripture is actually written in poetic and artistic form. If you were to just take your Bible and flip through it and look at all the places, usually in your English Bible, where passages are set out in indentation, it's an indication that this was a poetical passage. And so, just flipping through your Bible, you can see so much of the Scripture isn't just abstract principles, it's not just a systematic theology textbook. It is page upon page full of poetry and figurative language. The scripture doesn't just tell us that a godly man will do well. It tells us that he's like a tree planted by, by streams of waters. It doesn't just tell us that creation reflects God's glory. It tells us that the, uh, the trees clap their hands at God's majesty. Some of the Psalms are even arranged in beautiful acrostics, meaning that the, the, the writers took each letter of the Hebrew language and wrote out an entire psalm with each line beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. God, in other words, 
inspiring these biblical writers with his Holy Spirit, inspired them to make beautiful things, to make artistic things. Just like he filled Bezalel with the Spirit to make beautiful artistic expressions in the temple. All of that helps us to understand how God has entrusted to us the same kind of love and pursuit of beauty. And it helps us to understand how the Lord works through those artists, how the Spirit can enhance the pursuits of beauty. When Christ comes into our lives, we're filled with the Spirit and we have access to His power to reshape our minds into conformity with His Word. And that process begins to impact our entire thinking, our values, our reasoning, our understanding. It causes us to use whatever talents the Lord has given to us to pursue the highest levels of craftsmanship under the light of renewed understanding, renewed reasoning based on biblical truths. It doesn't mean that we simply reduce ourselves then and the talents the Lord has given us to just painting biblical scenes, you know, reproducing, if you will, Bible characters in our movies or in our stories or building all of our buildings in the shape of a cross. That's not the, that's not the outworking of this renewal. It's not just a sort of a superficial, as I said, propaganda. It means now that because of a renewed understanding, we now see life, we now see the world the way it's supposed to be seen. We now understand the source of corruption and where it comes from. We now understand the source of beauty, the source of peace and where it comes from. We now understand what reconciliation looks like. And we make art that represents those new ways of understanding all things. We don't, in other words, use aesthetics or make art that perpetuates lies and falsehoods of the world. That's one very good reason why Christian art can never properly use nudity in art. Because while we wouldn't deny that God has created beauty in the human body, we recognize that with the fall of mankind, the Scripture tells us there came a level of shame and corruption in the human mind that mandated a covering of nakedness. And to deny that is to perpetuate a lie. It is to deny the effects of the fall of mankind, and Christian art would never do that. Perhaps on the other side of the scale, we might say that art that presents a a shallow or overly romantic view of the world that doesn't really ever grapple with the true ravages of sin, the struggles and pain of life, just sort of superficial, that doesn't really convey what's in the Scriptures either. Christian art, great art, needs to address the realities of life under the light of Scripture. Godly art celebrates what's true. You might say, well, that's easy, I guess, if you're writing a poem or if you're maybe putting together a song 
maybe putting together a piece of literature, but what about all these other forms of art? What about non-lyrical music? What about Bach? What about, what about architecture? What about those kinds of things? Well, Frank Gabelin, who's written a lot on this subject, he proposes four markers of truth in art or art forms that we use in addition to Scripture that maybe help us evaluate beauty. I'll give these to you quickly. Like I said, this is not a comprehensive look at the subject, but just take note, four things, Gabelin says, that that should set apart Christian art uh, as opposed to non-Christian art. The first, he says, is the quality or the celebration of durability. It is durable, meaning that it endures. Truth, by its very nature, endures. It continues. And so art ought to celebrate that. It shouldn't shouldn't necessarily pursue that which is fleeting and faddish. Durability means that we recognize aesthetic excellence and truth as something which bears repeated examination. That's why you know a great piece of art. Because people keep returning to it. They keep going back at it. To look at it again. One look doesn't do the job. Gabelin also lists unity. Not just durability, but unity. That is to say, that aspect of art or aesthetics which draws attention to order and structure within itself and around the world. If contemporary art shows a sense of rebellion against its creator, then Christian art ought to celebrate a line of connection and relationship with the created order and the world around us. As a matter of fact, when you look at, at modern art, it is increasingly drawn to what we might call meaninglessness. Modern art gravitates more and more to a fractured, to an ununified view of the life and the universe. There are no absolutes. There are no things that you can connect together and bring meaning out of life. In fact, there's a name for it. It's called fragmentation. Modern art is known for fragmentation. This is the dynamic in modern art that describes the apparent disorder And it's intentional by the artist to communicate the darkness, the confusion of modern culture. The notion that life is too complex to be reduced down to repeatable and universal truths. It is all chaos. It is all disunity. It is all disorder. And so artists attempt to display this art, this idea of disunity and disorder. They celebrate it. The exaltation of meaningless, uh, meaninglessness, attacking the traditional ideas of symmetry and repetition and unity, and even the traditional symbols. Art depends on symbols, recognize symbols within the, within the broader culture, using them in ways that they would be understood by every, everyone, but modern art tries to upend those symbols to turn them on their heads and to communicate what is unexpected through them. All to give a vision of a sterile existence 
where nothing exists except for your own self-will, your own self-expression, your own self-assertion, and whatever you can bring for your own enjoyment out of it. Gabling lists a third mark of truth, which he calls integrity, which simply means that art resonates with real life. It has integrity to it. It isn't designed to just simply stir sensuality without the idea of consequences, and it's not designed to present romantic idealism without the notion of struggle with sin. It has all of that in it. And then finally, Gabling lists inevitability. Inevitability as the marker of great truth and great art. Truth, he says, gives the sense that this is how it ought to be. And he describes listening, the experience of listening to a great piece of music with which one is unfamiliar but having a sense of where it's already going. As musical phrases complete themselves, one has a sense that if I had the skill and if I had the time, that is the way I would have made it myself. That sense of inevitability. These are all the kinds of things that we can pursue as Christian artists in whatever capacity we have. A redeemed soul, renewed in the knowledge of its Creator, is renewed in its love of God and its love of His creation. It's renewed and it wants to pursue that in every way. And it understands that truth can be evaluated propositionally, it can be taught in Scripture, but where that evaluation is even less straightforward, our love for truth is a reproduction to whatever extent we can with the beauty of what we see around us, what God made around us. Which quickly brings us to the third principle, just briefly, the third principle that helps us understand the importance of pursuing beauty. And that is this, the pursuit of beauty is designed to reflect God's glory. The pursuit of beauty is designed to reflect God's glory. Very simple, stated clearly as we already saw in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or we might summarize it in the Westminster Catechism, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. One of the key differences between the idea of beauty for a Christian and the idea of beauty for a non-Christian is that we understand beauty as something that's intended to exalt God, not ourselves. This is why Paul tells ladies that they are to adorn themselves, not merely, he says, with braided hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, but with the inner person of a gentle and quiet spirit, as Peter says, a gentle and quiet spirit which is pleasing in the heart of God. Christianity, the Bible celebrates this internal beauty as so core and central to external beauty. A heart for God. A heart that desires to see God exalted even above itself. And so the whole notion of beauty for us is an exercise of drawing attention to our Creator, our Maker, and magnifying Him. For the unbeliever, 
The purpose of art and aesthetics is self-orientation. It is designed to magnify the producer, the artist, or it's intended to cause the one who consumes it, who observes it, to be stirred on in a love for themselves, in their own sensual appetites. All that can lead, as I said, to sensual displays of beauty, ostentatious displays of beauty. It can lead to an extravagance and selfish indulgence. It can lead to pride. It can lead to materialism. It can lead to lust. All those are perversions of what God's called us to. But a godly love of beauty doesn't lead to those things or a misuse of God's material creation. It's a healthy understanding that all of God's truth, including the truth of purity and mercy and humility and temperance and stewardship, all of those things are things we need to celebrate. For the modern artist, it's all about self. For the Christian artist, it's all about God. You know, in a way, I was thinking, in a way, this sort of corresponds to science. Christians, particularly in the last three decades, have increasingly come to recognize that the role we should have with science is not to flee from it, not to fear it, not to look at it as an attack, an an undermining influence on our Christian faith, but to engage it with a Christian worldview, to understand that we, just because we come to Christ, we don't automatically become great scientists. To be a great scientist, you have to apply yourself to years of learning and study in gaining the great techniques and knowledge of what every great scientist would have. But once you hone those skills, you then apply them to studying God's universe or, or, or studying our bodies or studying the, the microorganisms or whatever it might be. You do that with an understanding of the God who made all these things and you bring to your task a keener insight, a greater appreciation which only comes with an unredeemed soul. We see scientists, unbelieving scientists, making great discoveries and yet misinterpreting those discoveries all the time in the darkness of their own suppressed mind. And yet we understand that a true redeemed soul ought to be just as eager to pursue all the wealth and benefit that comes from all that research and yet celebrate it within the majesty of God, to redeem it, to subdue it, to bring it in dominion to the purposes of Christ. Art's the same way. Too few Christians give their lives to the pursuit of and the excellence of science, too few give their lives to the pursuit of excellence and beauty. But hopefully understanding our mandate and understanding the Spirit's equipping gifts and understanding our overall purpose in bringing glory to God in all that we do will help prepare us better to do that as a group of people, as the children of God, as the body of Christ. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, we're grateful to think about these things in the light of your scripture. We recognize that so few of us have the skills and the training necessary to make great art. 
But Lord, our desire is to bring beauty in whatever way we can because you have taught us beauty. It is you who made it. You presented it to us in the world around us and in the scripture itself. And so Lord, to whatever extent that we can, we ask your spirit to help us, to fill us, to give us the knowledge and the wisdom, the craftsmanship, the applied diligence to make our lives ordered and beautiful. Make our homes pleasant places of ministry and fellowship. To make our our churches and the way that we operate places that would be reflective of those eternal truths, of those wonderful markers of your hand. Help us to do it, Lord, not for our own sake, not for our own indulgence, but to magnify your name to let the watching world know that we see the hand of our Maker all around us and we glory in your beauty. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.